0: Today on the Dolby Institute podcast, we have writer, director, producer, cinematographer, and film editor, Robert Rodriguez, in conversation with his composer and son, Rebel Rodriguez, to discuss their new thriller, Hypnotic, starring Ben Affleck. We discuss how they finally completed this film after years of COVID-related delays, why the filmmaker still prefers working in Austin, Texas over Hollywood as his production hub, and how he's made filmmaking a truly family affair. All that and more on today's podcast. So stay tuned.
1: What do you see? Your daughter? The park? Wasn't paying
0: attention. Just for a second. Work? I think I'm ready for duty. Do you feel ready? I think it's the only thing keeping me sane. So, Robert, I know that this has been a passion project of yours for a long time. I, I know that you, you know, you've wanted to make a Hitchcockian thriller for many years, and I, I know that you were the original plan where you were supposed to shoot this movie in 2020 in Los Angeles, and of course, we all know what happened in early 2020. What? Just tell us what. What? What, did the, what effect did the pandemic have on the film and on your on your plan for making it?
2: Well, you know, I had come up with a movie 20 years before, so I was used to it being pushed around a little bit, but I was tenacious. I, I originally was going to do it. That was going to be my project of 2015 until I talked to Jim Cameron about Alita, and then I ended up doing Alita, and it got pushed. Um, but that's when I had actually written a final draft, was in 2015. I'd only had parts of the story over the first you know, 15 years. And... Uh, I was really determined to make it, especially once you start, when you actually start a production, you're, it's already now in your head. And for COVID to shut it down, you know, it just was going to be a matter of time for once that lifted, whenever that was, it was harder because it was an independent film. Actually, I went and did Star Wars for some time because Disney has the money to just make everyone wear a mask and push out the product. <laughs> we didn't have that kind of money. you know, It was an independent production. So we had to wait because insurance companies would charge us a lot to have people working under those conditions. So we had to wait till things calmed down. So we started the movie like three times. And each time we had Ben at one point, point, Alisi, and you know, I had my Dreamcast, but then we lost them on the next round. And then that one shot down. And then when it, you know, the final one, they were all back again. So I was glad I just, I just not been in this business long enough. You have to be tenacious enough to hang on like a, like a dog, you know, keep your bite on the, on the whatever you're after and not let go. And uh, it was just so gratifying after all these, it weird to even be talking about it at all. It's been that yeah. project for 20 years yeah. that was someday
1: going to happen. And now we're, yeah. this is one of our first I interviews. I mean, like as a point of reference, I've been hearing about this project throughout my entire life. I and mean, he would just like, say, <laughs> oh, is this idea hypnotic? And I'd be like, whoa, that's cool. And you're just growing up with hearing it, hearing it. It was like a myth. It's a mythical story. And then it's like, we're making it. And I was like, wow, really? <laughs> oh my God, Right. It's really yeah. cool.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's really funny that uh, that was part of your your childhood growing up. I it, it, one of the challenges that I, I love about this movie is that you know it's it's really challenging the viewer to kind of question like what is the nature of truth and what are you seeing and can you trust can you trust anything? Which I think is a pretty it's, it's a pretty cogent message right now as we're as we're looking at AI generated yes. images and all that stuff. So you've really made a very timely film. Yeah, but as but- a storyteller, I was really curious about you know. Obviously when you're when you're keeping the audience guessing like that you kind of have to r- r- walk a tightrope of keeping them guessing but without losing us completely. So I'm kind of I'm, I'm curious about your your development process with the script and and how you kind of walk that tight tightrope of staying ahead of the audience but not too far ahead of the audience.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's tricky. I hadn't done a thriller before. It's a very I knew that was going to take the time to to write. It was it can't be fudged like my usual movies where it's kind of like, it's like dream imagery. It's like dream logic. A lot of my movies, you know, somebody can suddenly have machine gun full of, you know, you know, guitar case full of machines or machine gun for a leg. You know, it's, it's more, it makes sense the second you're watching it and not a bit of sense later. Sometimes it's just pure filmmaking from the id. Jim Cameron called it once. (laughs) It's just like unbridled. Uh, but this one I knew had to work more like clockwork. It had to work more like a Hitchcock thriller where you can't reveal too much, you can't reveal too little. And so that was the real dance was figuring that out. But it was also what it really appealed to me was it, it, you can't help but put yourself in your movies. What I liked about the concept was that it's a lot like filmmaking. You know, It's a lot like what we do as storytellers and what audiences do to themselves. They let themselves be subjects. They come into a theater. They pay money to go into a theater. They sit down and they allow the filmmaker to create a hypnotic construct with actors, with sets, with dialogue, with music, sound effects that aren't real, so that they believe enough in what they're seeing that they can invest in it and emotionally either cry or laugh or applaud at the end. And they're in that world. So what if that just extended further, you know, and <laughs> that's why there, you see in the movie, there's. You see behind the curtain at some point and see that there's sets and there's actors saying lines and they repeat themselves. And and it's like the audience realizes, oh, we, we were as fooled as anyone because we put ourselves in. This. So it's a very meta kind of idea, which is what I always loved about it, was that you're just fully into it like you would any movie until you yeah. see, you know, really what's going on.
0: Yeah, and I uh, okay. I was I was I've been nervous about spoilers, but you said the, the actors and the and the and the the reveal of the sets and that stuff, which uh, I, I gotta say, like I having having been over at your place at Troublemaker Studios a couple times, I was like, wow, this is the most ingenious, inventive use of Robert's backlot at Troublemaker <laughs> in Austin that I've ever seen before. That was really that was nice. really creative and genius. I was
2: determined to do that, and even, even my entire crew said, "You can't show that." That doesn't make any sense story-wise. And I said, but it's sitting there. I'm using it because <laughs> no one cares. It's great production value. And I have I own this set. It's a leftover set from Alita. I'm using this set. So it was really, I, that's just my kind of resourcefulness. And then it totally works in the movie at that point where you see certain things. Um, there's a lot of things you see and don't see in the movie. And I like it being $2 tricks where it's not necessarily a visual effect. It's just an edit. You can yeah. just be looking at one thing and then it's like you start seeing things. Uh, I, I like that $2 you know trick effect to it. And a lot of the movies like that. And that's what Hitchcock movies were. So I was inspired yeah. by utilizing what you do. And because of COVID shutdown, we had to shoot most of the movie here in the studio. We couldn't go travel around. So it worked story-wise too. It reinforced the story we were telling it. It all worked better for the story, yeah. which was
1: magic. It all went back to that kind of El Mariachi thing of when there's no money left on the table. there the only production value you can bring and expand to it is creativity, and so a right. lot of it became even more creative and yeah. more driven by that, and it was really cool. So,
0: yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I've got some questions about that. I want to come back to, but uh, you know, for me, like the heart of the story is it's really about a parent's love for their kid. It's and your movie, Robert, is really a family affair. I mean, obviously you know, Rel here did the score. I know your son Racer is one of the producers on the film and another, your other son Rogue did some of the previs animatics, right? So yeah, tell yeah. me about, tell me about collaborating with your family and sort of how, what, what, uh, you know, how that makes the experience richer for you.
2: Well, it's, it's been a constant in my career. I mean, they've, they've started as actors and stud kids in the spy kid films. Uh, he was a young shark boy, the youngest shark boy and shark boy, lava girl. And, Another character in several of my movies, and and Racer, my co-producer and co-writer, he was on set with me every day. We'd always have to be updating the script. You know, he's not a credited writer on this, but he was writing with me because we'd have to change things because of all the changes in locations because of COVID. Every day we we're doing rewrites. So to have them be a part of this from the beginning, they already know what I like. They already know what what their our worldviews very similar. So it, they're just the best collaborators to have. Rebels already making music while he's seen footage come in and you just get a head start where you wouldn't get that with a regular crew. So to see them grow into those roles and they just blow my mind. Like I used to be the composer. He outplays me. He just writes circles around me. So I just (laughs) had to give him the whole job because he just knows so much. We gave him piano lessons since he was five and he just uh, became our best piano player. And then now our best composer. And, um, so that that kind of investment in them, I didn't realize was going to turn into this thing where they're my, my favorite people to work with. Just last night, you know, as we're sitting around the dinner table, we're talking about the next idea and we're coming up with story ideas. It's like your there's no separation between life and play and work. I mean, sure. it's all goes together, yeah. and that's what you were saying. How enriching this was.
1: Yeah, it was. Uh, it's really cool. I mean. Even before we were, of course, in the Spy Kids movies, but even in between that, I mean, we we're all drawing in the living room on the floor, just like, and so, that yeah. some of that stuff eventually became drawing concept for a lot of Sharkboy and Lava Girl, and you know, going in the pool and coming up ideas for Sharkboy and Lava Girl, the most ridiculous things, but it's like, it gave it such a kid like essence as well that we all kind of pitched into it and stuff. And it was, so we've always kind of been a part of it. And now that I'm really, really working uh, with, with my dad, um, I really see that, like, no, we've always been doing it. It was just, Work and play are almost no different for us. It's all just really enjoyable. And now they're enjoyable. the age where I was when I was doing mariachi and desperado and
2: all that. I was like, wow, this is like, I was on fire back then with all these ideas. No wonder these guys are, they're at that age where it's like, if I need help with hypnotic, I need myself from 20 years ago to come help me finish this thing. And I got them. I got a whole bunch of them. <laughs> so they, they come with all these great ideas and, and it's like, wow, divide and conquer. Let's just take over this thing. Yeah. I'm just, oh, they've become essential to my process for
0: sure. Rebel, tell me about your background as a musician and how you got into composing and, and how that, how this journey's kind of ha- happened for you. I mean, obviously we just found out that you've been studying piano since you were five.
1: Yes. So, you know, it was kind of a part of, there's a lot of, I have a lot of siblings. And so it was the easiest, we had a beautiful piano, beautiful Steinway. And so it was like the easiest thing was we all learned piano and, you know, so that way we can all kind of, if we had different interests, maybe we can move into a different instrument, but at least everyone kind of had a foundation on piano. And so since I was four, actually, I, I was very uh, tenacious to want to be a part of it and learn what my bro- older brothers were playing and stuff. And so I got into it a little early, but I played all through, you know, school, high school, I stopped taking lessons and I was I loved it so much. I really wanted to find some way to use it. And I don't know why it took me that long for it to just to pop into my head and go, right. People write music for movies and like for stories. And I've always loved that. I always would play my piano piece and envision a story kind of in my head of what it sounded like. And I'd start conforming the piece to fit that, like the image in my head and like, no, this, be, this part should be slower this part should be faster, it should be louder, you know, I just started breaking the rules a bit of (laughs) how it was supposed to be played, because I had this idea in my head. And I loved that idea of having music fit a story. So um, from there, I'd started writing, composing music. And it was on a small VR short uh, racer, and uh, Robert did that was uh, called that was the limit. And he had asked me, I was like, Hey, you want to come like, write a, maybe a song or two, you know, try something out since I was composing for like, about a year then. And uh, I ended up, Writing most of it, I really enjoyed the process. And from there, we jumped on to the next one, which was Red Eleven, and that was my first feature film score. And then from there, it's just kind of gone up. But um, what was really cool with this one was Red Eleven is almost entirely a synth score. Uh, I was still just kind of learning, getting my head, wrapping my head around, uh, you know, writing to picture and understanding pacing and character and tone and all that kind of stuff. And then the next film I did was We Can Be Heroes, and that was all orchestral. And then, so with Hypnotic, I mean, right from the start when they told me we were going to be shooting this, um, and they were get picking the script back up, finishing it up, you know, finalizing it. I thought of a theme for it, and I was like, you know, the whole idea is that this one should be a hybrid. It should be orchestral, and it should be synth at the same time. So I wanted to kind of bring together the skills i had gathered from the past two into this one. And, uh, you know, create a really interesting kind of hypnotic sound, reminiscent of Hitchcock, but since we love the Vertigo theme and all that kind of stuff. And it was yeah.
0: Like, yeah. Kind of stuff. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because of course, like with the Hitchcock films, you know, those Bernard Herman scores are just classic and so important to like, and the thing that I noticed right away about your music for hypnotic is like, it, it, it is, it is relentless. <laughs> it is, it is, you know, it is dramatic and propulsive and really heightens the, the tension. So talk to me about sort of like your approach to kind of scoring the, 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 particularly the, keeping the tension
1: in this film going yeah so that was actually really interesting because the thing with scoring films that i've really started to learn is there's usually a scene and it's you kind of approach it like a like a almost like a crossword puzzle it's like a logic puzzle where there's going to be a scene that's really pivotal to the movie and what you end up writing there it's going to be challenging but what you end up writing there is going to feed the rest of the film and so really we had I wrote a gosh a year before we even started filming I wrote the theme of the movie and that kind of was like more Hitchcockian really like mysterious sounding vertigo sort of thing but it was there was this other aspect that we were missing and it ended up being what was the bank heist music and like I read that in the script and I was like this scene's gonna be huge and like it's really gotta have this drive to it and so doing that scene that whole sequence is like completely driven by just this pulse that just keeps shifting and turning and you know but the drive that we kind of had to create there and uh and what was ended up being written there kind of fueled the rest of the movie and that's what gave it that. that really i didn't like a year before when we were when i still wrote that first theme, i didn't expect it to have that aspect to it but now once i got to see the film and understand it it was like okay it needs this kind of drive to it and once we the more we put that in, the more cutthroat it got. I mean, it just really makes it feel like a roller coaster. The twists are hitting you left and right, and it just keeps driving you. You know, it really, really became a fun movie. So,
0: yeah. Well, I know, I know, Robert, how important music is uh, for you and your process. I remember when when you were at Skywalker mixing Spy Kids. I remember chatting one day with Michael Semanic and asking him how the mix was going. He was like, "It was a great day." Robert brought in brought in his electric guitar, and we plugged it directly into the console. And he was he was flying new music into the final mix. On yeah, he's
2: <laughs> yeah, still tweaking. Got our guitars. He's playing guitars with me now. Uh, music was always a big thing, and I started writing more and more for my movies. So my version of his story was, you know, after he finished, um, you know, playing in high school, and he thought about doing some. But comp- he just said it kind of as a what if. He said. No, I'm not going to take any more lessons, but I don't want to lose what I have. Wondering if I should write some try writing a score, and I said, "Oh man, come give me some help. I have to, I have to score this whole 20-minute VR film. Take a couple cues and see it." And I really thought, because he was into Japanese knife making at the time, that was his passion. Uh, I didn't realize he loved piano so much that he would go be an actual composer because that's a hard job. I thought. He has never done it before you know he's been playing other pieces but as soon as he writes a couple pieces and he gives them to me for this movie, I'll, I'll just say just write me a couple pieces you know as soon as I have to give him notes on you know like well this shouldn't be so much like a song this has to kind of, I thought he would just go ah, I don't want to do this job I have to go read I have to go redo what I just did you know I, I can already tell he probably wouldn't dig that so much so I, I just let him off the hook and say, hey do a couple if you want and he blew my mind with what he wrote. And so I, I let him write the most of that 20 minute film. And then my next film, again, he was saying red 11, this low budget movie. I was, I needed to score this whole thing somehow magically out of, with no time that I had. So I said, come do a couple tracks for that. And everything he turned in was just the first take of everything he did. I was just like 10 times what you just did and, and we'll have this movie done. So I just more and more just lent on, let, uh, let him take the reins because it was just so good. And then the, by the time we did We Can Be Heroes, that was a full orchestral score. Okay, he hasn't done that. I've done that. Let's write that one together because I can teach him kind of what orchestral writing is. The very first piece he gave me, I we didn't even do it to picture. I put it to picture and it fits so perfectly. I couldn't believe it. I showed him, I go, okay, good news and bad news. Good news is it fits like magic and works. <laughs> bad news, I have no idea how you did it. So I can't even help you write this movie. You you're writing way beyond. You're like John Williams already. I don't know how to write that. So any scene I try and do is not going to sound at all like your scene. So you're going to have to do the whole thing now. But I just assisted him. I was his assistant editor. I was his editor and it was I kept him fed and he had to his eyes were like this big like I got to score this whole movie. But that's how I learned. You know, you throw them in the deep end like that. And they've got to, these are huge stakes. He's got to write a full cool orchestral score for a full film in like a couple of months. And they learned so much from that. And I learned so much from that. That now, you know, that's just how we work. And I can trust him. I trust him. And he's got to, I know each time it's different. Each score is different. You don't, just because you did one score doesn't mean the next one writes itself automatically. He's He's got to go battle it. That's how it was for me in every movie. That's how it still is on every movie.
0: Every movie's like, yeah you, you it make it sounds you make it sound so easy like he just nailed it the first time out so I mean rebel was it like working with your dad and I'm kind of curious like how do you guys navigate if you're not on the same page creatively
1: um, I mean the thing is, is we can I'm always read. right that's why it's yeah. easy <laughs> 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 we've been drawing together since we were little you know we all we kind of grew up he showed us all his old favorite things I mean we always have this funny story of he used to always play I thought it was the radio in the car. <laughs> And he put a, a CD of, you know, all his favorite music, from the 80s, you know, it was like all AC/DC and Kiss and Man, <laughs> the police and, you know, uh, Huey Lewis and the news. It was like all that kind of stuff. And that was what we grew up with. And I always thought it was the radio. And so when I went with like, I went and heard like the normal music on the radio at the time, which, you know, it was like Justin Bieber and it was Pitbull. It was like, where's all the other music? Where did it go? It's like, you know, it's like completely. So we've grown up. With a lot of his favorite stuff he used to watch because he was always just so excited to show us you know johnny quest He'd be like now nah, you're gonna watch this and that's like our, our old childhood so we think all so alike i mean usually we're just kind of covering each other's bases of like when he says something like oh right yeah yeah no that's a good point and when i say something like oh yeah i was just thinking that you know it really just kind of works well together and uh, the fact that he also is such a composer i mean that makes such a dramatic difference it's really I think that's so important as a director to know at least a little bit of every job so you can communicate with the other people that you're working with and understand it so he always has such a strong sense of not only the music but how it fits the edit how it fits the sound how it fits the acting he's i mean that's a part i can't even fathom yet and i'm starting to learn more and more about all of that from working with him but to think at all those layers really helps it become so much better so i usually just go all in on the music and then he'll go and make sure it fits everything else that's going to be around it. And so it really, it works really well actually.
2: Yeah. It blows my mind. I mean, I only have to give him a note sometimes for like, everything works this section here. Let's just make this quieter and do that.
1: And, and then I'll sometimes it, mock it up for him. And, yeah, he'll and he'll that's, that's it. just so invaluable. He'll yeah. just mock it up and it's like, thank you. I mean, the, like the most useful thing to me is not just giving me some vague notes. Like, <laughs> uh, I don't know what that means. I'm going to figure it out, but it's really, it really, really
2: makes And I know how work. music works. It's like so put together that you're, Your notes can be very surgical, so you're not going to have to redo the whole thing. It's like, no, the whole thing works. Let's just go surgically take out these two bars and put this in the head. And he'll try and he'll go, oh, wow. And it gives him more ideas. Yeah.
1: I mean, it was really cool. He edits so much for the music as well that, like, I would tell him some of these scenes, you know, when he edits and cuts it even faster and shorter as we're getting towards the final edit it cuts the airtime out of the movie. But the cool thing is it cut all the airtime out of the music. That was a spot where I was just kind of riffing. Cause it's like, all right, this is kind of going on for a while. The next thing's coming up in a second. Just got kind of to like riff for two bars. He chops those out. So I'm like, Oh, now it can just like drive. You know, it can really, really move. So problem, it's really problem cool. solved. Yeah. And I'll tell you the
2: benefit of having your own in-house composer, because if you just hire a composer, they're, they're just trying, they're trying to get a lot of work. They're trying to do as many movies and shows as they can while they have their career going. So they're not necessarily making music for your project. They're kind of doing their thing and you're getting their thing and they're going to do variations on their thing. This is all custom made to projects that they've been a part of since they were babies. (laughs) So they, it's in their DNA, like it's in my DNA. So my collaborators as close as I can get to getting clones, you know, people that (laughs) from the same DNA that understand what you want, they like the same things. He gives me something. I'm going to love it because he just, we just speak that language and it's, I know it's for this movie and he's not thinking about his next gig or the other jobs or that's the danger you get in having collaborators. They're not, they're just, they're there to do that. And they're off, but this is pure investment. If he wasn't here and a racer wasn't here, those jobs wouldn't open up for someone else. I would just do those again myself <laughs> because my, I always had a secondary company I actually have a company name that's called Nevermind, I'll Do It Myself Productions because (laughs) people make things such a hassle that it's not as easy as how you see our rapport is here that you just go, I'd just rather do it myself than have to deal with somebody who's half their minds on another project or they keep giving you something you've already heard they did in another movie and it's just, and it's not your movie. It's, they're, they're going off making their own movie and it's not the same thing. Here, we're all lockstep on the story. We're trying to convey... The moments we're trying to convey and we're all figuring it out together and it's a it's a great collaboration
1: Yeah. one thing i'd say is really special is being a part of it so early on you know they're writing it they're coming up with it they're and they're telling me the ideas you already feel like you're invested in a part of it so once my part comes around and i actually go score the film i'm writing stuff throughout but once like we actually go in and we start doing scene by scene um you know, you're so emotionally invested in what's been made for so you've been watching it form this whole time. and So, you know, you how you want to deliver how much you want to give it. So it really, I feel like I can be even more invested than if I was just dropped in at the end, which, you know, is mostly where most composers get. Yeah, they get, get, very they get the finished edit, you know, and it's like, all right, make something. And it's like it, it can be hard to get a, be into it if you're not like really into the whole process. and You watch this thing grow. Yeah, that's so a luxury. That's why I used to usually just started writing is
2: because you don't get a composer on till the very end. So they don't have a lot of time to, to get into it. And then the, the, it's got to be delivered so quickly where I, you can't afford to have one on at the script writing stage or at the conception stage throughout, but I could, if I was the composer. And now I still got that with him because he's there writing stuff. And sometimes you change the movie based on the music you're hearing. That's a whole other Line, that's a whole other soundtrack of dialogue telling the audience who this character is. And if you can, sometimes I would write a piece of music to get a better handle on a character I was writing and it would drive the script. Mm. So the music wasn't an enough. After-
0: well, I'm, 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 I'm curious to kind of follow up on that. Cause Robert, I mean, I, I you, you, talk about never mind, I'll do it myself. I mean, but that's sort of like, that's your, that's your DNA. I mean, you, you co-wrote, you directed the film, you've served as the co-cinematographer, you edited the movie yourself. I know you were on the mixing board as well. Yeah. Like so, I'm just like for you. What's it like? Like all of these kind of processes, I think are probably happening all at the same time. I mean, I, I even read something like you were cutting scenes at night so that you could show them to the cast and crew yeah. the next day while you were <laughs> while you were shooting, which is just that's mind boggling to me. Yeah. But I mean, that, that it just seems like that's that's part of the way you've always made your movies. Back to yeah. Mariachi, right? It is,
2: yeah. It was part of the process was getting you want your actors to be excited. When they're filming you don't want to wait to the premiere when it's too late they can't do anything about it. oh the movie came out pretty good you know i'd rather them be excited the next day they show up to work and i want to get a taste to see if it's how it's working so i would go home and do a quick edit of a sequence we just shot i'd show it to them the next day they're walking on cloud nine seeing that what we're doing is working so when we go into a scene they can extrapolate okay what we did yesterday, which felt so weird. We are holding scissors and doing this and that. Wow, it looks like that. Okay, we, 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 we're we in good hands. We can just do our thing and we know what we're, what we're making. So that that's important. But usually I, I kept all those jobs. I just love all those jobs. And they don't usually go on at the same time. Sometimes they can, like for that. But I don't have to sit there and edit every night to edit the movie. There'll be time to edit the movie. So when you're writing, you're just writing. When you're shooting, you're just shooting. You might be writing music in there, but it's just to show people what the sound is going to be like. Um, and then you go into the editing, which is another fun thing. So you get to take a break from writing, you get to take a break from shooting, and then you can take a break from editing, do the score, and then you start all over again. So you can do all those jobs because they're not happening all at the same time. So you're not, you know, like split, you, you know, that would be harder if, if it all had to happen in the same. There's just not enough hours in the day. But because it's split out, it's why I chose to be a filmmaker. I always loved photography. I loved editing. I loved music, I loved drawing, and I thought, should I be a cartoonist, should I be a musician? Well, if I'm a filmmaker, I can do all those things if I make my own movies and do all those jobs. I got to keep all my favorite hobbies, and I've added more since then. <laughs> and uh, so you're just living your best life. And then when you add your family into it, too, you've checked all the boxes. You're doing all your favorite things for a project that people are going to get to go see and enjoy and the harder you work, the more family time you get. It's like yeah. it's the best life. So there you uh, go. we really figured it out, you know, to where we are just having a blast. And
0: one thing that I've always admired about you, Robert, is like I, I feel like you're pretty fearless about adopting new technology and and integrating it into your process and your workflow. Uh, and I, I remember, like, I remember when I was at Skywalker Sound, uh, you know, a few times you came out. Uh, and, and you did those, you, you, participated with George Lucas in his digital summits back in the early two thousands when you guys were kind of trying to promote to other filmmakers, you know, how to, how to shoot digitally, uh, and, and, and kind of uh, embrace digital technology. And, you know, obviously, you know, we, uh, we are big proponents of Dolby vision and Dolby Atmos and this, the, the Dolby Atmos mix on hypnotic is pretty mind-boggling that's oh, it's, great, it's a great great it's, it's, nice. it's a great mix so I'm just curious I, I'd love for you to tell, tell us a little bit about Dolby vision Dolby Atmos these technologies specifically how do they help you unlock the experience for the audience and kind of enhance it I also remember
2: Jim Cameron's and, and John Lando's uh you know reaction to seeing Alita you know in Dolby um the blacks everybody's talking about just how even when I hadn't seen it you know the final thing done, and everyone was blown away when we first screened it that way. We thought, how many? And the first question was, how many theaters are going to get to see it like this? Because it was you just couldn't go back. You know, it's, I don't. It's like, how did we not get to see it like this until the very end? So now that's great that we that we can, and that the sound. You know, I was always a big adopter of five point one and surround. I was doing all those. I think I did a seven a seven-type mix on Desperado back in the day because Sony was way into that, even though there weren't many theaters that could play it. You know, I was just always into what's the latest thing. And I see that in my kids. Now they do that for me. They come to me and say, we figured out that there's these programs that we can use to pre-visualize the movie, and we don't need any of these previous people. We can do it ourselves using this, 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 this. And I'm like, damn, that's what we need. Who's who's on the cutting edge? Who's on the Who's got their finger on the pulse of where things are going? How can you utilize that in your toolbox? I was that guy you know, back in the day, that's what George Lucas and I got along. I was just like, forget tradition. We, we were trying to, you know, if, if Da Vinci had had a forklift, he would have freaking used it. He would have used, it. <laughs> he, he wouldn't be making scaffolding. He'd be getting up there and, you know, it, it would be just like, that's what you got to do is use technology to help you bring out the art. Technology is not the art form. It's just a way for you to do it. So to use technology to convey, you know, uh, something that's, mind blowing to watch to listen to that's dolby that's that's you know atmos that's the more that we can immerse people into this hypnotic construct we're making for them the better you know so that they totally believe what they're seeing and their minds are blown and transported we want to give them a, a real experience, and that's what that stuff allows.
0: I know that you, you kind of move back and forth between studio films and indie films, and obviously your DNA is very, as about as indie and scrappy as I can possibly get. This is a pretty, a, a pretty disruptive time in our business. The business models are, are get, all getting upended. This is a what feels like a big budget movie with an A list star that you guys made on an indie budget outside of the studio system. Are you optimistic about where things are going in our business, or are you pessimistic? Mm-hmm. This business has lasted a lot
2: longer than I thought it was going to last. I mean, when I saw what happened to the music industry, I thought, oh, movies is is next. It's been, you know, 20 years. So I think people still enjoy consuming content. And if you're content creators, it it doesn't, again, it's just like why I started shooting digital film. I I wasn't that linked to tradition. What is it at the base of what we're doing? It's like editing. I was one of the first, I was the only movie on the Sony lot editing digitally on Desperado. Nobody wanted to touch that thing. They thought it was going to take their job away. It was always fearful. I grew up in the industry where everybody was always fearful of the next day. I was not fearful of it. I thought embrace technology. It's going to let you do things that you wouldn't normally do. And if everything shifts, really content is the king. So people are still going to want to consume content. They may consume it differently, Mm -hmm. but you still have to come up with ideas. You still have to come up with stories. So that's what we, sh- we should verse ourselves. And that's what they've all been learning us together so that we can always create stories that people will want to see in whatever form it is. So uh, I'm not pessimistic towards change. Uh, the industry usually is, is averse to it more a reactive business than an innovative business. They usually see what someone else comes up with and then they go that way. That's why George and I got along. It's like, we're not waiting for people to start adopting digital. We're going to shove this thing through because we know this is going to improve and film will never improve. Film is just going to slowly get lower and slower and the quality is already crap. You know, it wasn't like the golden days when it was Technicolor and, you know, uh, 70mm CinemaScope. It just degraded from there. Um, we have to push the new technology to get new ideas and new ways of telling stories because the art form is storytelling. It's
0: not you know, technology. No, you're right. You, you remind me of one of my favorite things that George Lucas used to say about the new technology it was like, this is the worst it's ever going to be. Yeah. So where's it's the worst it's going to be. It's only going to get better from here. My favorite story was one guy I walked into when I was there doing one of the summits because
2: I was one, it was just me and him shooting digital back then. So we were showing all the big directors digital so they know what it was coming from filmmakers, not from cinematographers. And uh, he's because crew took me behind the scenes to this room and there's this huge tower in there. And they said, See, this is our server, it's three terabytes. And I was like, Whoa, I never even heard that word. It's three. (laughs) There's <laughs> yeah. now
0: three terabytes is here. Yeah,
2: and that was like totally 20 years ago. I mean, things changed so fast.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. So, one final question for you, Robert: Is the director's chair going to come back? I got to tell you, like that show, I was have such fierce love for that show, and it was actually such an inspiration for me in terms of how I wanted to kind of model these interviews that I do. Like, you were so well prepared you had such a love for everybody that was on that show. Like the, I got to tell you, I think my favorite episode was when you had Barbara Streisand on, it was just oh, such yeah. a, was it surprised. was such a surprise that you would bring her on your show and have that. But it was so clear from like, you guys were vibing talking about, you know, uh, about Yentl. Like it, yeah, it was just, yeah. you, know, you were, you had so much love for the, the for the, the director's work that you had on that show. I just wish you would bring it back. Yeah. I would love to,
2: especially her with a career she had and, you know, having to go up with such, you know, people just saying you can't be doing this. You shouldn't be doing this. That's that's what I heard my whole career. I could really identify with that. You know, so um, I love that show. My next two are going to be Jim Cameron and uh, and Edgar Wright. But then Jim was went off. I missed him right when he went down to go shoot the Way of Water. So I'll have to bring it back because those are my two up in line. I just at dinner with Edgar. I'd love to interview those two because, and I, I kind of was concentrating on writer directors because you kind of see that their career is. Um, very linked to their personality because they actually wrote the stuff. So you get a full picture of who they are as a person through their work. So there's not a lot of those. So, um, but all the ones that I interviewed were writer directors. So if it was the director who directs other people's stuff. It wouldn't be quite, they'd still be entertaining, but sure. um, yeah, I would do my homework and I learned so much from doing that by learning so much about them, hearing the answers I'd never heard, giving them sort of the elevated questions. They had never heard some, some of their favorite interviews. George Miller thought that was his favorite interview so much. He gave me, uh, the The steering wheel from Fury Road.
0: <laughs> <laughs> They're all chasing around. <laughs> well,
2: awesome. I also I also learned a
0: great. Uh, I learned a great tip from you too, which is it, it never hurts to start with a shot of tequila before you sit down to talk. All yeah, right, it. right. <laughs> a shot of tequila always helps. Well, I hope some someday we can uh, come out to uh, uh, to Austin to Troublemaker and have you guys back on the Dolby podcast, and we'll we'll do that shot of tequila. Oh, you got oh, to come here and see
2: the place. It's yeah. crazy.
0: And you'll see all the locations
2: from Hypnotic here. We used every inch of this place.
0: <laughs> well, thank you guys for taking the time to come on the Dolby Podcast today, Robert, Rebel. It was great to talk thanks, to you. Thanks, Ben. Good to see yeah, you again. Thank you. Great to see you again. Many thanks to Rebel Rodriguez and the original Rebel Without a Crew, Robert Rodriguez, for joining us today to talk about Hypnotic. And special thanks to our friends over at Ketchup Entertainment for putting this interview together on such short notice. If you'd like even more conversations with artists and filmmakers about how they use technology to tell their stories, please be sure you're subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. You can find links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms, including the video version on YouTube in our show notes, or you can simply search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. If you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head on over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you will find information about all of our programs. You can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, thank you for joining us. This is the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with additional editing by Matt Nixon. And our production coordinator is Sunny Chen. Thank you for listening.